This is the Kavnis HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Kavnis. Hello, and welcome to the Kavnis HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash cabinetshr. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, and MP3 player. Our guest today is Pornima Vijay Shankar. Pornima, are you ready to be great today? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. She is a founder of Fimzineer and is an avid public speaker who gives talks around the world on topics ranging from engineering to entrepreneurship. She has also given a TEDx talk and hosts a monthly web show called Build, sponsored by Pivotal Tracker. She's also been an entrepreneur in residence at 500 Startups and mentor in residence at Techstars, a lecturer at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering, and the founding engineer at Mint.com, where she helped build, launch, and scale the product until its acquisition in 2009. She has also authored and self-published two books, how to Transform Your Ideas into Software Products and co-author to present A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking. She holds degrees in Electrical and Computer Engineering and Computer Science from Duke University's Pratt Engineering. Pranima, thank you for being here today. We really, really appreciate it. So what's keeping you busy right now? What are you focused on right now? Well, I am actually getting ready to start my maternity leave in about a week. Oh, so- congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so I am just kind of winding things down, and I'm you know, going to take the three months off, but there's certainly a, a number of things that I'm kind of finishing up, and I think the big one is my web show, as you mentioned, Build, so just finished off with filming until October to give myself some buffer, uh, and then putting together a course for the fall focused on communication for first-time leaders because there's a lot of trials they go through as a first-time leader. And, you know, the first time you have to hire somebody, the first time you have to fire them, dealing with conflict, etc. Yes, for our listeners, I highly recommend you check our show. It's very informative and great insights and great advice. It's, very, it's a great show. Thank you. You do a lot of remote work, remote teams. How can you tell us someone's going to be a good remote worker? Because that environment is not for everyone. Yeah, it's it's certainly not for everybody. I think the couple questions that I often ask to suss out if people would be a good fit are first having them walk through a project that they've done that was self-directed. Because a lot of what you're looking for are people who can be resourceful and operate in a way where they're not necessarily going to have somebody sitting next to them or even necessarily in the same time zone to be able to respond to a question or a concern. So have they demonstrated self-leadership in some uh, varying capacity? kind of prioritize and manage their time because, again, they need to be able to know what's of top priority. They're not going to have people around to kind of guide them. And then the third is like, what's their communication style? Because there's different types of communication that you need to be comfortable with. You know, a lot of written communication, so email, text messages, etc., 
But then the others, of course, verbal. So we still need to be able to communicate easily on things like video chat. Uh, you know, you're not going to have the same level of face-to-face or live interaction. So you want to make sure that people are not only clear, but they're also capable of handling difficult situations, you know, conflicts that come up or challenging situations dealing with customers and other teammates. Do you ever go, go see them in person? Absolutely. I think there's there isn't a hard and fast rule. I know uh, for myself, I try to do at least once a year with the folks that work with me, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Uh, this year might might be a little bit challenging with the baby, but in previous years, I've tried to do at least one to two times. The other thing is to encourage people, even if we can't do like a big team meeting, to have them meet with one another. And so people are often going to you know, each other's cities or they're meeting up at conferences and things like that. And I think that FaceTime is still really valuable. Yes, I agree. From your point of view, what are tech companies getting wrong or right about diverse hiring? Yeah, I think, you know, it's great to see that there is an interest. I think a lot of times what ends up happening, though, is they're depending on the startup companies. So they don't, you know, while they mean well, they end up not having the time or the bandwidth really to bring people on board. And so they end up taking some shortcuts. And the more often they do that, you know, if years start to go by, then it becomes harder and harder because candidates are wary of wanting to join the company. And then I think the second thing is, aside from, you know, what stage they're at, it's very hard to suddenly turn on the switch and say, okay, now we want to hire more folks of, you know, certain backgrounds or certain education levels or, you know, because diversity encompasses a lot of different things. So the truth is it, it takes time. And a lot of that means putting in the effort over multiple quarters and often multiple years. So I think too often they're they want to have quick set of results, you know, within a quarter, within six months time. And a lot of the work that's being done now is really just investment so that in two or three years time, you can reap the rewards. But yeah, I think there's too much anticipation in getting to results quickly. And I'll be interested to see, you know, you know, before companies started the diverse hiring program, what the stats are before and after, like, is that hiring program they're implement is they really affecting change? Or is it just a, you know, a thing to do? Exactly. Yeah. So actually, that's one of the best practices is to really benchmark where your company is at, especially if it's a bigger one. So benchmark, you know, who in the company, and then also benchmark why people are leaving. A lot of times that's hard to get out at exit interviews. So running surveys, kind of getting at what's causing people to leave or maybe even to not even apply. But I think you have to do that research and that groundwork first before you decide, okay, now we're going to put forth a concerted effort. So I'm sure I'm going to get a stat wrong, but there's a st- I saw a stat somewhere where it says, like of all the elementary, all the schools at elementary school, only like 10 or 20% of them are still interested in STEM once they get to high school. How do we fix that? And you think this is, this is a societal problem we have? I remember even in my middle school class, we had, it was a funny math class where it was 90, actually I think it was 100% girls. And then by the time I got to my senior level math class, which was calculus, it was myself and one other girl at the time. And then maybe, you know, a handful of guys in the class. So I definitely saw the drop off and personally experienced it. I think the challenge is one 
getting people interested in the subject matter so that again, even, even some of the higher level math classes I took, I noticed they were just smaller in size overall. So both girls and boys oftentimes stay steer clear from some of these tougher subjects. But then the second thing was I didn't see a lot of encouragement from families, from teachers, kind of pushing young girls to pursue. And part of that is not seeing what the outcome is, like what do they expect to do with a degree in STEM? Are there additional role models? Is there a support structure beyond high school, beyond middle school, you know, into college? So I think there has to be one piece getting past to the, the girls, you know, how are they being educated? Are they being encouraged? Are they being compared to their male counterparts? And then once they graduate from, you know, one level to the other, you know, how are the new teachers treating them? So I think that's, it's an entire process uh, change and, and rethinking how we educate people, but then also giving them a sense of, okay, here's what you could accomplish if you had this sort of degree. Here's the kind of career you could have. Here's the lifestyle. Here's the impact you can make, you know, on, in the community and the world. And I think a lot of that often gets lost uh, or is deprioritized. What advice do you have for a new developer that's just graduating college and looking for their first uh, software development, development position? I think, you know, a lot of times people get really bogged down in, I need to consider everything. I need to learn like a bunch of programming languages, all these different industries popping up and going even in more specialized. Think about what are some of the general skills that you can acquire that are going to serve you well. Think about how you can maybe initially create a focus area. Like if you really like mobile, then maybe you decide, okay, I'm going to spend a couple years or even, you know, a year studying and kind of honing my experience with mobile development. And I'm going to sort of learn soup to nuts because a lot of times what happens is the industry will change and the sort of learning that you put into and how you approached it will still be replicable in a new field, right? So whatever it is that it took you to learn how to do mobile development may be a similar set of practices that you apply to a new field like, you know, AI, machine learning, or if you want to learn about blockchain and Bitcoin. So I'd encourage people to be a little bit broader in their thinking and focus on how am I going to acquire this knowledge? How am I going to practice it versus, oh my gosh, I need to learn like everything at once, or I need to have this like alphabet soup of languages under my belt. And then the second thing I would say is taking the time to do some of those side projects, but not getting too overwhelmed, right? Like you still want to do your work, but if you can set a goal of, hey, once a quarter or twice a year, I'm going to go to a hackathon. I'm going to work on something fun on the side. That can be really beneficial. And then the third thing I found is really helpful is making sure that you're also doing a fair amount of mentoring both ways. So you might be pair programming with somebody who is younger than you in terms of experience. Uh, and then you might also be working with somebody who's older to kind of gain their insights and best practices. And that way you start to get better because it, it definitely is a skill. Uh, and a lot of times we need that help. But a lot of times when we teach people the skill, we start to see where the gaps are in our own expertise. You do a lot of startup advising. 
From your point of view, what are most new startup founders not understanding about the process of building a company? Yeah, well, there's a few things. I think the first is depending on their background, whether they're technical or non-technical, uh, I actually think it, it doesn't matter because I see this happening with both camps is people get really, really obsessed on the product, the technical nature of it. And they often forget that they still need to find a market. They need to get comfortable with figuring out how they're going to monetize their product. And beyond that, how they're going to transform this into a business. So they get really bogged down on like, oh, I'm going to build like this thing, whatever the thing is. And they forget about all the other pieces that go into building a business and building a company. So I think that's um, the first. And then I think the second is really thinking through why they're doing what they're doing. Because it's easy to want to start a company and make it seem really glamorous, but if they don't have kind of the expertise behind a domain, or if they don't necessarily have a background having built a business before, then a lot of the challenges they're going to experience in that first or second year when it comes to being rejected by customers, by investors, by potential employees, is going to make them feel like, oh, I'm not cut out for this, right? So that's sort of the other half of the battle. And then I think the third piece is being coachable in terms of, you know, having mentors, having advisors, but then being able to distill the feedback and having some instinct around, okay, I know I've gotten two different pieces of feedback around the direction I should go in, but let me think through what, you know, what's happening in the market or what's happening with my customers and make a decision. I think a lot of times first time founders end up deferring a lot to the advisor group that they've built up instead of saying, you know what, this is kind of the vision I have for where I want to go. I definitely agree. If you're a startup founder and you don't like to hear the word no, it's probably not for you to <laughs> go over and over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Next, can you talk about a time you were successful in the past where you learned from this success and what we can learn from this? Sure. So, you know, I've definitely had many moments. I think you know, one of the most successful moments was getting acquired, building building Mint and getting acquired. And I think what I learned from that experience was, again, taking the time to build a really great product, build a team who could execute on that product, and then always keep a very close eye on who that product is going to be of value to, not just in terms of the customer base, but also a potential acquirer, you know, a partner. And so I learned a lot about just general startups and company building from having that experience. But even I think if, you know, even if that hadn't been a successful exit, I still got introduced to entrepreneurship uh, and I had never considered it prior to that experience. So it was pretty eye-opening. And being at the ground floor also and seeing every piece of it was very, very valuable because I think a lot of times when you come in halfway or you know once, once some things are in place, you don't see the full evolution. So being there at the ground floor really taught me like how, how we switched gears, how we kind of made small pivots, how we thought about marketing to our customers, uh, you know, what some of the issues were that people 
were reluctant to use the product. You know, there was a lot around security and trust that we had to overcome. And then finally thinking through for even myself, as because I was an engineer at the time, thinking through how to evolve the product as you acquire more and more customers. How do you sort of scale doing certain things, not just building the product, but how do you scale customer support? And how do you um, scale responding to people's requests? Because everybody wants everything done a certain way. And so I think that was a very valuable lesson or set of lessons I've learned from that success. So the follow-up question, talk about a time that you failed, what you learned from this and what we can learn from this. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was kind of ironic right after a successful startup. The second startup I started, BusyBee, was meant to be a solution for small businesses, specifically businesses that run on a membership basis, like a yoga studio, a fitness business. And we always had a challenging time getting it off the ground, but there was a particular challenge about three years in. And what what we were trying to do is we were trying to build a second product. We had built a first product that was a CRM solution. We built a second product that was aimed at providing small business owners a way to take in transactions and get paid out the very next day because small business owners struggle with cash flow. And so we had built out a product. It took us about four months to build out the initial product and then once we were ready to launch, our vendor that we were working with, who was providing us things like PCI compliance and all of the sort of guts behind the security and so on, changed their terms of service, as well as changed how their product interfaced with ours. So our four months that we had invested ended up becoming eight months, and we were getting really tight on cash flow at this point, because now we had to reinvest in building a product again. So we spent eight months building this product. We ended up launching it. And the fortunate thing is it seemed as if we were succeeding, like we were going to get to break even in profitability in six months, given how well the product was going. What really happened under the hood was because we were providing next day payouts because of this like big push we had done with marketing and building awareness, we ended up taking in a bunch of fraudulent charges and basically became like a target for trolls who were like stealing credit card numbers off the internet and putting them through our system. So that ended up severely crippling us to the point where we basically had no more cash flow. I couldn't make payroll in like a month's time. And I had to come clean with my team, with our customers, with our investors and shut down the product. And so that was a really challenging point uh, in my career to kind of own up to this series of mistakes. And, you know, a lot of it, it was like we had, we had done a lot of work. I had spent over a year kind of figuring out how we were going to do all of this. And despite our best intentions, you know, just getting blindsided and then having this happen. And it was really unfortunate. But I think what it taught me was it's always good to be uh, honest in these difficult moments. And the second thing is, you know, there's only so many safeguards you can put into a system and it doesn't detract from like all the work we had put in, but it just means that, you know, there's, there's more and more that you need to think about. And so I think it, it taught me like to stay a bit paranoid anytime I'm in business and really think through, you know, sometimes people's worst intentions. 
That is definitely a great lesson for all of us. Next, can you talk about someone who's helped you in the past and how they helped you? Yeah, so I think I've had a lot of great partners in the past few years who have been really, really supportive when it comes to my business, when it comes to building out kind of products or being mission-driven. And the two people that come to mind are my co-author, Karen Catlin, on our book, Present. She's just been really phenomenal at opening up her network, working with me. Uh, you know, initially when we started the book project, she put a lot of trust into me because I had self-published before and I've been sort of repaying that trust um, ever since. But she was very good at working with me and she's also older and more experienced. So it was it was nice to see that she trusted me and gave and gave me kind of the go ahead and and worked with me and again opened up her network to where a lot of our initial customers, a lot of our initial sponsors came through some of her contacts. Uh, and then, you know, over the years we've been able to build out a following for our book and for our course. So she was really valuable partner. And then the second is for my web show build, Ronan Dunlop is the producer of it. And he's a director of marketing at Pivotal Tracker. And he approached me after I had published my first book and we got to talking. And ever since probably 2015, he's been working very closely to to help me kind of build out this show, build out a lot of awareness around it. And again, as somebody who is a little bit older and has the ability to, you know, pull somebody like me up who's just, I wouldn't say getting started, you know, kind of halfway through my career, almost halfway through my career, but see the need to like be supportive of someone like me and see the mission and to say like, yes, what resources, what help do you need? So I'm really thankful for both of them sort of being my champions and being my sponsors. And I think I wouldn't have been able to do as much in terms of awareness for Femgineer and brand building without either of their help. I want to see you have a book to recommend for our listeners. Yeah. So uh, a couple of years ago, I read this book called Thanks for the Feedback. I wish I remembered who told me about it, uh, but it's a book I think that's really valuable no matter what stage you are in your career, what type of career you're in. I think it's just really valuable because it shows you some of the mental blocks that you have when taking in feedback from peers, from your partners, from uh, people who are higher than you, people who may be getting started and less experienced than you. Uh, and so it's very helpful to ha have that awareness. And then it also shows you how to kind of distill that feedback, apply it when it makes sense. And so I think it's just a great book, but it also tells you how to give feedback to other folks as well. So I would highly recommend that book. And also understand you have something to give our listeners. Yes. So my book, Present, A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking, would love to share that with your audience. I am a big proponent of getting more voices out there. Uh, while it does have a technical bent to it for people who are presenting technical concepts, I think there's still a lot of general public speaking advice in there, but with a slightly different bent. I think a lot of folks struggle with things Things like finding their voice, making sure that they're an expert in their field, or oftentimes they're introverted or shy. So the book also does a good job of tackling some of those more challenging topics and helping people get their voice out there, whether it's 
inside of their company in like a meeting, or if they decide to do more, you know, speak at an event, speak at a conference, it'll walk them through all of the steps. So it's very much like a cookbook in that way. I'm a big believer that you have to do public speaking every opportunity you have. You got to be able to get in front of a group of people and convince them to do what you want them to do. Totally. Yeah. And it's, and it's great that you're hosting this podcast. It's definitely a, a great example of public speaking. Yes. Thank you. Can you provide your social media links either for yourself or your company so people can reach out to you? Totally. Yes. I'll be sure to follow up with those. Yes. And for our listeners, we'll provide all the links in our show notes. So we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you provide any last minute advice or knowledge on any subject you'd like to talk about? Uh, I think the big thing is coming back to what I was saying about voice and getting getting comfortable, you know, sharing your experience, sharing your expertise. It, it really doesn't have to be, oh my gosh, I need to do something earth shattering in order to share my experience or I need to be somebody of a certain level. I think a lot of times we can start as early as we want and there's always somebody out there who's a little less experienced or who is looking for guidance. So I always like to treat it as, you know, think about being somebody's big brother or big sister and helping them out. And a lot of times you end up getting mentoring from them, you know, so it's a great two-way street. And I would encourage your audience to start thinking in those terms because I think it's, it's a great way to build out your network, give back to your community, but to also think about how do you want to evolve in your career? Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be an individual contributor? And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be one or the other. I think it's a great place to start as you get your voice out there and you share your experience. Pranima, thank you for being a guest on our podcast. And you're a very busy person. And of course, you know, you're asking me a whole lot busy about a week, in about a week, isn't it? Yes. To our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Kavnis HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit KavnisHR.com or connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook at Kavnis HR. Thanks again, and be great every day.